Open up your Bibles once more to Luke chapter 17. And I was wrong this morning. We hadn't finished it yet, but Lord willing, we will finish it here this afternoon. We're going to look at verses 20 through 37 of Luke 17, which is entitled, The Discourse on the Coming of the Kingdom. Uh, and the Lord at this point has already alluded to it, but it's going to be getting more and more specific uh, for this part or this portion of his ministry is, uh, as he's getting nearer and nearer that week of particular passion, uh, he's got to make some things clear. Not that he's been blurry or uh, not been upfront about anything, but he's got to make some things clear for the church to understand uh, kind of what all things are about, but also what's coming. So he says in verse 20, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. And this word here literally means to lie in wait or to spy. You won't find it that way, is what he's saying. Uh, you won't figure it out. You won't manufacture it. You won't coerce it out of the Lord. It won't happen because you're looking, and it won't not happen because you're looking. It's not how it's going to come about. Then he says, Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall, see, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, which is, of course, Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. And then he goes on for the next sentence or two talking about the days of Noah. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. His second example Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot. Then he gives examples of that. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house. Let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. So once again, kind of like with the last lesson, we're entering into some text that has a lot of meat to it. So as a type of disclaimer, please remember we're not going to cover exhaustively everything that there is to preach in this setting, in this lesson. One, it would take more than what we could do in 30 to 40 minutes anyhow. But the purpose of this lesson, what drives this particular Sunday afternoon study, is understanding when these chronological events take place. So I'll give you the typology as we can, 
And Lord willing, we'll dive in, dive in deeper with other sermons to the context and the specifications. And, and some of this even, I'm intentionally leaving that meat on the bone for when he says some other things so that we can come back to it. So we're going to get through just a brief understanding of who and what is happening here, who he's talking to, and things of that nature. This particular conversation begins with the Pharisees, not with the disciples. We see the Pharisees again here, and now they demand from Jesus to know when the kingdom of God would be established on the earth. It's interesting to me that here we see it being the Pharisees. That might surprise us, because I imagine most people in today's world that ask when the Lord will return again, or when the kingdom of God will be established, we like to think they're asking from a standpoint of also being a Christian and longing for his return. That's not what the Pharisees are doing, which means there's also a pretty good chance that's not always the case in our daily lives either. So just keep that in mind. Remember, the idea of deliverance for them was limited to the flesh. They were longing for freedom of oppression. The Roman law, the other uh, oppressing governments that had lingered since other epics that occurred in the inner biblical times, all of these things that had crushed down upon them, they were longing for freedom from that. It's amazing when the devil reaches such a, uh, such a pinnacle of misery for a believer or for those of the nation of Israel in particular here, where they lose sight of the actual freedom that God had promised and covenant for them in comparison to what it is they physically feel. They long to be removed from those strifes and those longings and those, those hardships. They are not thinking about what it is Jesus is actually going to do on that cross. That freedom is very different than bad government and overtaxation and so on and so on and so forth. Don't get me wrong. These times are awful. I mean, the times we, we live in now are pretty bad too, but the crosses that were set up on the Mount of Calvary, it was not the first time anybody had been crucified. This was something they typically did to traitors. And we'll talk about this more as we get closer and closer to that mount. But understand, this was, they were set up at the city gate where people would see these crosses and those crucified on them as they entered and as they departed. Imagine living in a time where you saw that just about every day, just outside your city gate, where every time you saw a Roman officer roaming up and down the streets, it crossed your mind they could be looking for someone for the next cross. They could be looking for me. Okay, so this is what they're dealing with. This is what they're fearful of. And it is very real. But it is not the freedom that Christ has promised. It's not the, the will of the Father in which He is coming to fulfill. But this is what's front and center for them. This is what has taken over. This is the loudest noise in their lives. Not their sinfulness. Not their slavery to their own sinful nature. But this oppression that's right, right around the corner. They wanted to be free in this life. Jesus had been teaching the crowds to die unto themselves if they were to follow Him. Specifically in Luke, He's been teaching this idea of discipleship since, what, chapter 13, chapter 14? I mean, we see in chapter 14, where uh, in verses 26 through 33, He said this, If any man come to Me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children <coughs> and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In case that sounds like some old-fashioned expectation, let us remember the last few months. Let us remember what our brother's going through and has been going through for years. This is a real trial. Do you love the Lord first and foremost more than anything else in this life? 
My wife knows that I love her. She knows that I love the Lord more. My eldest two children know that I love them, but they know I have a real fear of the Lord. They know that I love the Lord. And there are going to be times in our lives, in this life, in this walk, and Jesus says it, to be my disciple, you will have these times in which you will have to know Not that He will have to know, but you will have to know that you love Him more than father, mother, wife, children, brethren, and sisters, yea, His own life, or you're not His disciple. Whosoever doth not bear His cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Well, what king going to make war against another king sitteth down or sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an, uh, an embassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. So again, that's text that we have dove deeper into in the past that we see coming back up again. This is the same crowd. This is the same book. They have already heard that particular lesson and what they're seeing now as the Pharisees stir these things up and they they challenge the Lord, when will the kingdom of God be established? The things that Jesus is saying now will challenge the heart of these young disciples. It'll also challenge that church that had been charged to not be the trap stick, the tripping stick to the snare for these young believers. Jesus says the days are going to get harder. We'll return like the days of Noah. We'll return to days much like what Lot had experienced in which we're not even permitted to look back. Have you ever been led away from something in this life and you knew you were not to look back? That you were not to go back or even consider those experiences and pleasures of the flesh? I'm going to tell you something that is pretty honest. I am a male. And males, in spite of what the world likes to say now, are attracted to the opposite sex. Knowing that and knowing that she's my wife and I'm commanded to be honorable and respectful to her and to our family, I don't go dipping in and out of bars trying to find other things to see if I'm still enticed by them. We have to be careful what we expose ourselves to. And if the Lord has already given instruction to not look back to something, there's reason for that. Be careful, beloved. Do not continue to tempt your flesh and think you're stronger. Are you better than Lot? Do you remember Lot's wife? Do you remember the temptation that countless biblical characters have fallen under? David, a great man, a mighty leader, used of God countless times, was not at the battlefront with his men, was on a rooftop gazing yonder at a woman who bathed. We don't read where he looked away in shame. We don't read where he ran to his room and confessed and repented and asked the Lord to forgive him. We read that he sent a servant to go get her. Beloved, you're not stronger than your flesh. We are warned against the flesh. We are advised to put to death or mortify the flesh. In the text, Jesus gives them two days or two periods of time to consider when they want to know when, in fact, the kingdom of God will come. And it's interesting, the mindset that he sets out is uh, the Pharisees, if they were asking with the right heart when the kingdom of God would be established, 
He's cautioning them, just like we saw previously in Luke 17, of the need for self-reflection. You're longing and looking for this thing, but there are going to be other days that come in between there where your flesh is going to take over or be tempted to take over. You're longing for His second coming. And yet, sufficient enough is the day, the evil that you're dealing with right now. The days, the two periods of time that he uses as an example between here and there were awful times. But can we just cast asunder Sodom and Gomorrah and say, well, they all knew one another to be sinners? Beloved, every man is righteous in his own eyes. Do you really think that every neighbor of Lot's thought we're the most despicable in the world and high-fived one another every day? (laughs) Doesn't get any worse than us, guys. We've made it. What about the days of Noah? He preached righteousness for 120 years while he built a boat for rain no one had ever seen before. No one had ever even heard of. And he preached repentance and he preached righteousness. And everyone outside the ark rejected him. Only eight humans were on that boat. Beloved, those days, Jesus says, think of this. This is coming first. You're looking for that. It's already sewn up and established. I said it's coming and therefore it's as good as already come. But there's something coming in between that you need to prepare for, he says. It's a sign of mercy that he even tells the Pharisees about this at all. But it's likely for the disciples in the crowd more than it is for them. I would love for the Lord to be coming back this spring. If he is, the next three or four months are going to be awful. We need to be aware of that. If we think we can conceive of how bad Sodom and Gomorrah was, how bad the days of Noah were, I don't think we understand Genesis. These men were before Noah. One of his distant relatives, Lamech, wrote a poem about how violent he was to his... He wrote the poem to his two wives bragging that he was the most violent of the entire lineage of family thus far. And that wasn't as bad as what the generation of Noah was a few generations later. We have awful times. Our nation celebrates murder and homosexuality and pride and gluttony. We do a lot of things wrong. It's going to get worse. The message of Christ Jesus does not change. It should be the most consistent beacon of light shown through all periods, through all generations. So these periods of time preceded catastrophic events that were judgments of God against the sin of man. We know they're catastrophic because both events in that text that we're looking at in Luke 17 verses 20 through 37, both events end with four words, and destroyed them all. These are catastrophic events. The days of Noah are described as free living and carefree. The days of Lot sounded as though they were overly prosperous for man's ambitions. They bought, they sold, they did all the things that we would say that uh, probably in my lifetime we would say the 90s were pretty similar to what Lot's time would have been. Everybody bought and sold invisible companies that didn't even exist in run. Things like this, people made tons of money and everybody was doing great. We're still not as bad as times were in Lot's day, but I'm giving you an example to relate to. In both examples, the judgment of God came, the righteous were preserved, and we see that of those outside of God's mercy, God destroyed them all. These weren't good old days stories, beloved. Jesus wasn't saying, I want to tell you about the coming of God, but let's first revisit some great memories. Remember Lot's wife? 
No, this wasn't a fun story. And he quotes Sodom and Gomorrah a few other times, even proving that they aren't the worst. That they will even sit in judgment of those during Jesus' time. By comparison. Jesus is saying essentially that the Pharisees and all of mankind must remember that God is true to His Word. He will, He must judge sin. For the elect of God, He judged sin at the cross. For all outside of His election, they are yet to be judged, but they will be judged for all eternity. It is essential. He cannot be absolutely holy and not judge sin. He cannot be one ounce righteous and not judge sin. He cannot turn his eye away from sin as though it doesn't exist. It has to be addressed. What will the world be like just before the final judgment and the coming of the Lord? It will be business as usual. With little concern for the warnings God sends. There are, amazingly, at this point, if you consider art being a reflection of life and all these things, if you look at the movies being churned out of Hollywood right now, we have horror movies in the theater just about 12 months out of the year now. But the leading movie types are superhero movies showing man's longing for some savior to come and relieve them. There are horror movies, god-awful post-apocalyptic movies that are so real now that it seems like they could happen at any time. And believe it or not, the theaters are also being flooded with Christian movies. Uh, I'm using the term generally. You understand not all Christianity is the same or right. But there's a reason that those are the three leading movies in the theater right now. The Chosen's new season is going to be in the theater at the beginning of February. And I'm telling you to abhor these things. I'm telling you to exercise discernment. Some of these things could be good. But that is what we're seeing now. That is our entertainment. That is what man is not only longing for, but being told is coming. People will eat and drink, attend weddings and carry on their vocations. And then the judgment will catch them unprepared. In Noah's day, there was a great deal of violence. We see this in Genesis 6, verse 11 and 13. In Lot's time, men were given to unnatural lust. You see that in Genesis 19, verses 4 through 11. But I imagine your imagination's already told you what those verses say. We see both of these characteristics in our own time already. Both. We see signs of Noah and Lot's day right now. We hear many today say, Why must I put away this thing or that tradition? Why must my dreams and desires perish? And the answer is that there is a crisis at hand. Men love darkness rather than light. John 3.19 We must put away such childish desires for a greater then man has come. Think of what Paul said to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. You know it. He says, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, beloved, I'm going to read the rest of it. But what we see in society now is either that child, children no longer become men, or that they no longer put away childish things. This is happening. For now we see through a glass, darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I also am known. Consider Luke 11, verses 29 
through 36. Luke 11, starting in verse 29. Jesus says, This is an evil generation. Pharisees were the ones he was talking to then and now. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. By the way, I earlier referenced him talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, sitting in judgment of that current generation. In that same moment of text, he puts the Ninevites there as well. The times ahead are dark, beloved. And they sh it's not hard to imagine, right? Men already do not hide the deeds they do in the dark. That's what's changed in the last 10, 20 years. They do it openly, we do it openly, and unashamedly. Now those of us who are born again, we feel that shame. But those that aren't, they no longer hide these things. They no longer hide these deeds. He says, The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And again, we dove into these things when we were teaching through it in the same study. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, put it a putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. What is that great crisis? What is that condemnation? That condemnation is that men love darkness rather than light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. And here's where we started with this particular lesson. He says, Take heed therefore that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. If you know there is a temptation to your flesh that is potent and strong, you must abhor it. If the, light is not, if the eye is not whole, if the eye is not taking in and per perfecting pure light being brought in, then it is contaminated. The Lord portrays here that light with a little darkness is darkness, that the whole body should be filled with this light. He warns of what? Over and over and over again. Just a little bit of it. Leaven. And what does a little bit of leaven do? Leaven's the whole lump. What does a little bit of darkness do? Darkens the whole lump. Beloved, we can't be a little bit Christian, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. There's no such thing. We are either unashamed of Him or we are ashamed of Him. And there's no such thing as in this scene and around these people, I'm unashamed, but in this scene over here, I'm ashamed. Well, then you're ashamed. Anybody can be a believer amongst believers. The scripture even says that even the devil and his demons can portray angels of light. Even they can portend to believe when it is convenient. But when Paul, Simon Peter, James, when these early disciples were being martyred, do you think their flesh didn't at any point say, like Job's wife, repent! Repent, just die! Curse God! 
Move away from this thing that has brought our flesh to this moment. Our flesh, a part of us, that old man that loves darkness, longs for retreat. Let us go back. Let us go back. But when we were removed from the garden, we were essentially told there's only one way back, the tree of life. There's only one way back to the bliss that you've forsaken when you partook of the tree. And that is this tree of life. Go read the end of Genesis 3 tonight. There's no other way to the Father but Jesus, who is the tree of life. It's echoed through and through and through and through this entire book. We can't have them in part. We must have them in whole. Paul says, putting away such childish things, we can therefore have the light of Jesus. We can experience such forgiveness in this life and peace in the next. Remember Lot's wife, who shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Paul also wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him. But having mine own, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. Notice that's not comfortable. It's conformable unto His death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Something we need to know about our writer there, Paul, same one who wrote that letter to the Corinthians that we quoted earlier. When he was in prison at one point, he longed for two things. His cloak and Scripture. He longed, he asked for the parchments, the, the, the scripture that had been written down for him that he had studied from. He longed for the word of God. He longed and found comfort in the word of God. You know the only way we're going to find comfort in this is if when the trials come, we're familiar with it. If it has indeed been written upon our hearts. This, these, this verses, Philippians 3, 7 through 11 is written by a man who found comfort in the Word of God, that longed for the Word of God to be near him, even in his darkest times. Oh, Father, that you would remind me of your goodness. Do we think that David had a different intention with all the Psalms? A constant singing and reminding of how good and gracious and wonderful God is. Think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Think of Elisha and Elijah. They didn't just sell out for Jesus, beloved. This was their comfort. This was their life. They they counted everything else but dung. They counted everything else loss for this. Yeah, they ended up in dungeons and prisons and and sufferings and some crucified. Some crucified upside down. Some boiled alive. They suffered awful things. And they counted it nothing in comparison to what they understood of what Christ Jesus did for them. That could be what the next few months has for us. If we've been doing Christianity right at all, they know where we are. They know how to find us. We may suffer great things. 
It won't, it'll pale in comparison to what Jesus did. He went and suffered a criminal's death, a shameful death. He tor was tortured undeservedly. All those things are awful, but beloved, he stood in front of people, his people. He was the door, he was their shepherd. He stood in front of them, their Messiah, as they chanted, crucify him. Over and over and over. All those other shameful things, we might think that's awful. That's the worst it'll ever get. He stood in front of his people and was rejected of them. He didn't have to come except because it was the will of the Father. He deserved nothing that he suffered through at all. And these disciples suffered their deaths, their martyrs' deaths, understanding that it pales in comparison to what Christ Jesus did for them. Our life, we got to get to this point where we understand that our life, we heard in Sunday school this morning that the enemies of Christianity are willing to die, that Christianity would suffer. They're unashamed of it. We got to get to the point where we understand that our life is already sacrificed for the Lord Jesus. He did not die on the cross so that I could have three cars. He did not die on the cross so that I could have a bank account. He died on the cross that I might go to the kingdom of heaven. That I might preach the gospel in this life and that others would also come to know him as their Lord and Savior. It's the same reason he died for you. No one in here was ever died for so that you could live comfortably. Because this is not the, this is a fallen world. This is a fallen creation. Do you, if one day we're going to understand just how far creation has fallen from where he had created it, and we will be astonished. Amen. Since this cold snap has come through, there's creaking and floorboards in here I had not heard before. And it's a reminder that this world is, uh, if it were a computer program, it's failing at terminal velocity. This world cannot sustain itself. There's no ounce of protection against global warming and all the other things that man has developed that will stop this world from perishing. Who could deny the change that had been brought about in the heart of Saul as he writes these words to the Philippians? He was a man of importance. Even in Acts, where, where we know to be his Damascus Road experience, he had the authority of the synagogue. All those guilty of following the way, men and women, were to be bound. They were to be convinced, if you will, for lack of deeper instruction or, or explanation. They were to be convinced of the error of their ways. They were to be encouraged to confess that they were wrong that Jesus was not the Messiah. Saul, not, to, to be granted such authority, authoritative figures had trust in Saul. Now he didn't sway them in any way, but they trusted him to implement the uh, things that he was decreed to do. This is a changed man. What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The excellency, the opportunity to just know about Him. Amen. He says, I count everything else lost. Man, do we look at Sundays that way? The excellency of the opportunity to come and see if the preacher will blunder through and give us a nugget of gold about who Jesus is. Not everybody gets this. 
Go look at that mission board out there. Listen to Bone's story. Not everybody gets the opportunity to decide whether or not they want to come to church on Sunday. There are some that long for it. He's expressing a new nature, Paul is, in these words. Granted unto him by Jesus Christ. He would not have been considered a closet Christian. Most assuredly, he would have been considered a zealot of zealots along with the other list of things, chief of sinners and everything else that he has as a title. A zealot of zealots. Fierce in his tenacity to hear the gospel preached. One final warning we can take away from, and again, this particular text, the end of Luke 17, has got a lot in it that we're going to come back to. But another final warning to consider here is Jesus warns against devoting our efforts to guessing or deciphering the date of his return. There's a number of reasons for this. One of the main reasons is he said it's going to come to pass. We're just to trust that. When he went to the cross and said that he died for our sins, it was revealed in our souls that that was true. And we trust that. So when he says that he's coming again, we don't need a date to prove it. You know how insulting that is to the creator of the universe? Oh, hey, you're coming again? Well, when? When? None of us have a planner or a calendar that can even hold such precious truth. We're simply to believe it. Scripture is most clear that there is no answer for man to devise up. The important thing is not to chart the future, but to be ready for his coming at any time. Right. A servant that's ready at any time is working that's right. and watching that's right. and longing for his return. I think Paul was ready every day. Her grandpa Jim Wilmoth, I talked about earlier, he was ready every day. He didn't even have funeral plans. He was so certain the Lord was coming during his lifetime. Uh, I won't encourage you to do that. That's hard to watch and hard to go through as a family. But he loved his Lord so much that he was just certain the Lord was coming back in his lifetime. The important thing is to be looking for the Lord Jesus. This means paying no attention to the sensationalists and the people who claim to know all the secrets. We see that in verse 23. And from verse 34 to 37, we see one more thing that we need to point out before we close. Jesus is describing the judgment of the Son of Man's day. I mean, that's what he gave us of Lot's day and Noah's day, that there was a judgment, that all were destroyed. We see that in both, both accounts. The word taken that we see in these verses, let's read verse 34 through 37 real quick. I tell you on that night, there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, and the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, and the one shall be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. See, on the surface, this section sounds wonderful. This sounds like the rapture. This sounds like being caught up in the air, and everybody left here wondering, Where'd they go? That's not what this word is talking about. This word taken is very, very different. It's not talking about the rapture. This verb speaks more of being taken away in judgment, which is consistent with what we see in Noah and Lot's days as well. They're not in purgatory. Only the eight humans in the ark survived. Only Lot and his daughters escaped. Even his response to their question, where, Lord, gives credence to the closing uh, uh, hours of man, which are depicted in Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18. In this text, Jesus says, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles 
be gathered together. That's what we have in this text. In Revelation 19, verses 17 through 18, John tells us, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and the flesh of one that was grinding together and the flesh of one that was lying in the bed. the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. You know, beloved, if the rapture is getting devoured by a bird, and many of you know how I feel about birds, that's not the kingdom of heaven that we're being raptured to. These that are taken are taken in judgment. This is coming. To truly be prepared for his coming, we must abhor this world and mortify the deeds of this old body. John chapter 12, verse 25 says, He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Very similar to what we have in our text. I want to add to this, do it now, today, while there's yet time. Seek the Lord while he may be found, like we heard this morning. Imagine the angels have been dispatched to take you and yours by the hand and lead you from this place, like we see with Lot. Would you tarry? Those things that will be so important to you the next time church is to gather, those things that will be so important to you the next time somebody near you needs to hear the gospel that you say, well, I would, but I can't. Will you say that to the angels leading you out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you say that to the hand of God that's closing the ark door? Oh, wait! Desperate and wicked housewives is coming on and I can't miss it. Will you attempt to hold back the will of God? Don't come back yet, Lord. The Super Bowl hasn't taken place. You know what you can do with the Super Bowl? Punt. It's not important. And the reality shows, and the reality of our flesh, not important. It will not stay the hand of God. When we stand in front of Him and He cites time and time and time again, when Joe Sitters failed to deliver the gospel, when Joe Sitters failed to be faithful, and I say it again, we will not be able to lie. I will have to confess to the Creator of the universe who had at least the attention span of six days to create everything, but certainly way more in His long-suffering. I'll have to explain to Him how I could not maintain my focus. That even while in the garden and the Lord said, stay awake and pray, I fell asleep. I'll have to give a confession for that. And you will too. In these hours that are ahead of us, when some will be taken off in judgment, their blood is on our hands. When we have failed to prioritize the preaching of the Word of God. I think the preaching is going to get harder in those last days too. Because the Lord knows. And any preacher who's actually worth his salt getting his messages from study and prayer with God will receive messages that are not easy to hear. Certainly not easy to study. Such as what, what lies at the center of God's will. Tough times, tough preaching. Steve Kaiser, one of our teachers at 